pandemic brought out some interesting things in all of us, didn't it? One guy in the midst of the pandemic decided he needed to convey something that he was feeling. And that feeling was this, I'm not okay and that's okay. So he said, well, what better way to do that than a a sign? I'm going to get a sign and put it in my yard. So uh, he contacted a sign company and said, I just need a sign that says, you're not okay, that's okay. Sign company said, well, that's fine. You need to order a minimum of 300 of these signs. Well, the guy said, well, I only need one. They said, well, you need to order 300. So he said, okay, fine, I'll order 300. So he ordered 300 of these signs, stuck one in his yard. People started to drive by and see this sign that said, you're not okay, that's okay. Within 36 hours, the other 299 were taken from his porch by people who resonated with that sentiment. Uh, What that reveals to us is that people, they, they understand that there's a problem in the world. The pandemic, I think, brought so many people face to face with that reality because it took us out of our comfort zone and put so much outside of our control. And we began to feel our frailty, feel our brokenness, feel what that sign conveyed. I'm not okay. The problem is what that sign said afterwards. That's okay. It's okay to not be okay. In fact, there's a unifying principle there that we as humanity can just all gather around together and all admit that we're not okay and that's okay and we can all kumbaya together with the fact that the world is broken and let's just all be okay with everybody's brokenness. Yes, everybody's broken. Yes, everybody's not okay. But the problem is that's not the biblical message. The biblical message is not you're not okay and that's okay. The the biblical message is actually built around the very premise that you're not okay and God did something about that through Jesus, through the gospel. In our passage this morning, uh, we're going to see Jesus heal a man. But you'll remember in John's gospel, all of these miracles that he records, he calls them signs. Because they weren't just conveying what we see on the surface, but a a deeper reality. A reality that that he says in the end of the, the, the book, that he recorded these signs so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing we might have eternal life. And so while we're going to see a story of Jesus healing a paralytic in our text this morning, he's conveying something that's deeper there. Here's what what Jesus is doing. He's going after the reality that we're not okay. But he came to be the solution for that. And so how do we respond to this reality? I'm not okay. What's the response? What's our recourse? What what does the, the scripture call us to in that? Three things. First, hate sin. Second, love the gospel. And third, follow Jesus. That's what our text is going to bear out this morning for us. Why aren't we okay because of sin? So we hate sin. What's the solution? The gospel, that Christ came to heal us, not physically, but spiritually. And we love the gospel. And then what do we do after that? Well, if we understand everything that he's done for us, we follow him in full devotion. So take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 5, if you will. And as you're getting there, just want to remind us where we've been in our series so far. We're studying the entirety of the Gospel of John. We just took a break for Christmas. Now we're back into it. John opened with an introduction of Jesus. So we looked at this series called Meet Jesus in the prologue of John's Gospel. And then we just finished, before Christmas, a series called Coming Into Focus, where we began to see that this Word of God that he talks about in John chapter 1 is unique. There's something different about him. And he began to unveil that through his interaction with Nicodemus and his interaction with the woman at the well. 
but still a lot of what we read about in the early chapters of John depicts our Savior still kind of behind the scenes, uh, working offline, so to speak, in these individual conversations. Well, we're starting this brand new series called Jesus Uncensored. Because in John chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus does and says some things in these chapters that if he's not who he says he is, are pretty outlandish and outrageous. In fact, so much so, if Jesus is not who he says he is, when we read about what he does and what he says in John 5, 6, and 7, our conclusion has to be Jesus is a sinner and a blasphemer and he's worthy of death. But if he is who he says he is, What we read about in John 5, 6, and 7 should lead us to the conclusion that he's worthy of our faith, repentance, and full devotion. John chapter 5, we open up as Jesus is making his way from Galilee, where he had been, which is in the north of Jerusalem, down, geographically speaking, to Jerusalem. But he was going up to Jerusalem because everyone, anytime they went to Jerusalem, went up because Jerusalem was on Mount Zion. And so, Jesus is leaving Galilee and going up to Jerusalem. And the reason is because, as our text says in John chapter 5, as it opens up, there was a feast of the Jews, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Okay, why did Jesus go up to Jerusalem for a feast? Which feast? We don't know. John doesn't tell us. There were three feasts that required the presence of every Jewish male over the age of 13 in Jerusalem. Those three feasts were Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost. So it was one of those three feasts likely, though we don't know which one it particularly was. The point is, John's just trying to get us contextually understanding why Jesus has left Galilee, where he'd just been, and is now back in Jerusalem. But as he comes into Jerusalem, he comes to a pool called Bethesda. This is a model that's in Jerusalem at the uh, Jerusalem Museum there that you can go and see a a, a mock-up, a scale mock-up of what the city looked like during the time of Jesus. This is the Pool of Bethesda. So this is what is described here for us in John's Gospel with these colonnades, these halls that were covered over, and in them, as we read as the text continues in verse 3, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man, the text says in verse 5, was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So this is the pool of Bethesda. Today in Jerusalem, it looks like that. You can see the parallels, can't you? No, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's hard to make out, but this is the, the historical site. You can go there and you can see where it was, where it sat. This is the remnants, the remains of the pool of Bethesda. But this is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. So he comes there and he finds this man. Well, why were they there? Why were there all these invalids laying in these colonnades? Well, the reason is there was a superstitious belief. There was a mythical belief that was based on a, a belief in the false gods Asclepius and Serapis that these pools would hold healing powers. Uh, the pools were probably spring-fed, and so as we'll find out in the text, they would from time to time bubble up in the springs, and people held a belief that this was a, a time when the water was being stirred up by the gods, and if, if you got in the water first, you were the first one that would be healed of whatever malady that you had. Uh, the problem is we have zero external evidence anywhere of this actually being effective, and we'll talk about why the people still gather there nonetheless. But this is what Jesus comes upon. This group, this sect known as the Therapeutae, 
were a, a group that would gather and they would tell people, come to the pool of Bethesda and you can be healed of your malady if you get into the text. In fact, on that note, look at your Bibles at verse 4. Look down. If you're holding an ESV, look at, at John chapter 5, verse 4. Raise your hand if you found John 5, verse 4 in your Bibles. Okay. If you're holding an ESV, there is no John 5, 4. You'll notice it goes John 5, 3, John 5, 5. So throw away your ESV Bibles. No, don't throw away your ESV Bible. Uh, what, where did John 5, 4 go? Okay, first thing is, is this. Note this. Chapter divisions, verse breakdowns, those were not part of the original documents. So it's not as though John was writing, here's verse 3, here's verse 4, here's verse 5, and the editor somehow just decided we're going to take out verse 4. These verse and chapter divisions were added at a latter time. So where did verse 4 go? Well, Verse 4 in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it does show up there. It doesn't say anything like, and Jesus isn't God. It doesn't say anything like that at all. Here's what verse 4 reads. It says this, Because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water, then the first who got in the water after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. That's verse 4 in John chapter 5. The problem is, and the reason why we don't have it in our ESV is all of the best and earliest manuscripts don't have verse 4 there. So it, 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 the earliest manuscripts have what you see in the ESV text. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. So what, why was verse 4 included? Well, a lot of times what would happen is editors would include something to try to explain something that wasn't clear. Sometimes this would be a note in the margin that at a latter time somebody copying the text would mistake for something that should be in the text and would include in the manuscript. And so that's how things like this happen. But through the process of what we call textual criticism, by the way, when we get to John 8, I'm going to do a whole message on why you can trust your Bible, okay? But through the process of textual criticism, we can see that because there's no manuscript copies prior to 400 AD that include John 5, 4, it was probably added at a latter time by a copier, by an editor, who was trying to just clarify what was going on for those that wouldn't have been familiar with this situation, Okay? So John 5.5 5 is the next verse after 5.3. Don't panic. You don't need to get a different kind of Bible. You don't need to worry that something happened, that this is some conspiracy theory. It's not. This is what the practice of textual criticism looks like as we study our Bibles. But this group is there. Verse 5, one man was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. The word invalid there means uh, somebody who is just generally sick. Uh, or lame, uh, possibly paralyzed. And I think that's what we're dealing with here with this man. Based on his own testimony, he's going to talk about in verse 7, that no one could get him into the pool. So I think this man is dealing with some sort of paralysis. And for 38 years, he had been a paralytic. Think about that. 40 years, unable to walk. 40 years, coming to these pools, hoping somehow to get into the water. John seems to know a lot about this, and, and the reason is because John was a witness of these things. John 21, 24 tells us as much. John 21, 24 says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things. In other words, John's saying, I was there, I saw these things. So John is recording this, telling us this man had been there for 38 years. Why does John put 38 years in the text? Why does that matter? Well, I think John is setting us up to, to feel the hopelessness, to feel the brokenness. To, to realize this man's powerlessness over his condition. I'm confident that none of us in this room would choose four decades of physical infirmity 
But do we understand in this room that all of us at one point in time were this invalid spiritually? All of us in this room were just as powerless, just as helpless, just as incapable of finding deliverance from all the pools of Bethesda that the world offers us. Hopeless, unsatisfied, joyless, frustrated, needing the healing that Christ and Christ alone can provide. When we read about this invalid, y'all, and remember, this is a sign that John includes so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing we might have eternal life. When we see this invalid, we should see a parallel of ourselves, not just prior to Christ, but even now, because we should see the damaging impact of sin in the life of mankind. And it should lead us to our first point, and that's this. Hate sin's impact. Hate sin's impact. It's not hard to see sin's impact on the world all around us. Right? There's a reason why everybody resonated with that sentiment. You're not okay. Uh, Yeah, sign me up. That's me. I'm not okay. Maybe you feel that this morning. I'm not okay. Or maybe you just look at the headlines and go, man, this world's not okay. We've got earthquakes. We've got war. North Korea's firing at people. South Korea's firing back. We've got a presidential election that's going chaotic and and crazy here. We've got all kinds... Things are not okay. And, and, and we trace it back to one three-letter word. And that one three-letter word is what? Sin. Sin. We should hate sin's impact on humanity. But more than that, even after we're saved, y'all, we should carry with us a hatred for sin's impact in our lives. It doesn't belong. But too often we're just, it's easier not to have to deal with. When we were in California, we lived in a, a house that uh, was in a, an area with a lot of palm trees and, and things like that. And uh, with palm trees come vermin, rats. And I remember in California, uh, sitting downstairs doing my, my Bible reading one morning, and it was the first time that I heard it. I heard a rustling in the wall. I was like, what is that? And that, not only that, then I started to hear this pounding on the wall. And then it started to sound like he had opened up a wood shop and was just tearing at the, the, the studs in the wall, like just going at him. And, and I quickly realized that we had an uninvited house guest living in our wall. It was a rat. Now, I could have decided to do something with that, uh, but I, I didn't want to open up the wall, number one, because it was a rental house. I didn't buy it, right? So I'm like, not my problem, ultimately. As long as it stays in the wall and doesn't come inside my house, whatever. It'll go away eventually. Uh, and, and second is, I didn't want to open it up and see how bad it really was inside. I didn't want to know how many rats were in there. So you know what I did? I named it. His name was Frank, and he lived inside my wall. And he was there seasonally. And it came that I, I developed a little bit of an affection for Frank when he would come back during the, the, the cooler weather as he was taking refuge inside the wall of the, the, the house. And thankfully, we never saw Frank or any evidence of Frank inside the house. But uh, yeah, Frank lived there, and I just didn't want to deal with Frank. Y'all, that can be sin in a Christian's life. It can reside with us, even after salvation. We can see the, the problem with the lost, and from a 30,000-foot view, we understand the parallel between us and the paralytic. But do you see that you still have vestiges of the paralysis that still linger as a Christian? Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins that he talks about some of these vestiges of the old man and, and, and why we don't consider these as devastating and destructive as we should be when in reality they, they are. Some of these might look like this. Maybe you show up here every single week and you are faithful to serve and you are here and you are doing work and you are 
putting out chairs and you're setting up the stage and you're tearing down and you're doing all this. And, and maybe sometimes you side-eye the person that just walks in and, and isn't here doing those things. And maybe you've let a little bit of pride creep into your life to think, well, I must be better because look what I'm doing versus that person. Or, or, or maybe... You know what, when you're around your church friends, you sound like your church friends. But then when you get around your unbelieving friends or around your unbelieving social media following, you sound a lot more like your unbelieving friends do. Or maybe another respectable sin might be that that you feel like, man, 2023 was a rough year for me. I deserve better this year. After all, God, I'm here. I'm part of a church plant. I even moved, relocated, got a different job to be a part of this church plant. God, I deserve blessings this year. You've embraced a a sense of entitlement. Or maybe your respectable sin this year is a little bit of a lack of of contentment. Well, God, it'd sure be nice if I, I made more money so I could buy a better house than the one that I have. Or it'd be better if I had this or that. Or maybe the, the sin that, that you find is, is outbursts of anger. When you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, what comes out of your mouth? Perhaps your respectable sin is just a general irritability with your family. Or maybe it's envy when your neighbor across the street pulls into their driveway in their brand new car and you think, why do they have that and I don't? See, none of these are necessarily big-ticket sins. And and all of these are sins that we can look across the aisle at somebody else and go, well, I'm not sinning like this person is, so I'm okay. And and all of these sins are sins that we can kind of sweep under the rug, keep inside the wall, and say, you know what? It's all right. As long as it doesn't creep out and and, and nobody else knows about it, then then grace covers these sins. Now, does grace forgive us? Yes. Can you ever out-sin the grace of God? No. But does that mean we should be okay with sin in our life? No. Nobody would choose to go and live like a paralytic, and yet we're choosing to re-engage all of that when we allow and harbor pockets of sin in our lives as followers of Jesus. There's a problem with humanity that Christ came to deal with, and that problem is sin. And so, yes, in Christ, we deal with sin, and we deal with it at the moment of conversion, but, y'all, we need to understand that sin still has a damaging and devastating impact on our lives as we continue in our lives. In fact, here's some of the things that I just mentioned as far as some of the respectable sins that maybe we have. But think about these sins, right? And and here's some of the ways that they can damage you as a believer. This is some of the reasons why you should hate sin, more so than just doctrinally and because the pastor says you should hate sin. This is what sin does, Christian, in your life. It hinders your prayer life. Peter talks about that with husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. He said, lest your prayers be hindered. I should feel dangerous to us. It can harden your heart towards God's word and towards the spirit. Unconfessed sin can lead to more sin in your life. It can isolate you. You'll want to pull away from fellowship in the church and pull away from fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. In some of the worst cases, unconfessed sin may lead to self-deception. That you think that you're good with God, but really, you're self-deceived. The other thing that sin in our lives can do is it leads to the forfeit of eternal rewards. That at the bema seat of Christ, there will be more that's going to burn up than passes through. 
The other thing that sin does in our lives, Christians, is it damages our witness. The world looks at you and sees sin that looks just like their sin and says, well, what, what, why, why bother? There's a tragic line in a, a documentary about these young men that travel around the world and, and interview people about Christianity. And, and at one point they ask this, this group of, of young people, they say, do you have friends that are Christians? And they say, yeah, we do. And they say, well, do you notice the difference in their lives? And here's what they said. Not really, they're just busy on Sundays. Are you just busy on Sundays? What else can sin do? Well, it can lead to seasons of depression. It can produce feelings of shame. It can open you up to spiritual attack. Christian, sin is to be hated. We need to hate any vestige of the old man that we find in our lives. And do everything that we can to rid ourselves of it. And, and the reason we can do that is because where we go next, because what, if, what Christ has done for us. Pick up in verse 6. Jesus sees the man lying there, knows that he's already been there a long time, because remember, this is God in the flesh. Here's a, a, a little reminder that John includes in there. Hey, remember who we're talking about here. This is the word that was God, that, that is God, right? The word is God. He's here and he knows because he's omniscient. He understands this man's condition. So he sees him lying there, knows that he had already been there a long time, and he says to him, do you want to be healed? We even get a glimpse into the idea of, of God's pursuit of us as Jesus singles out this one man amongst the multitude that are gathered there. And he goes to this one man and he says, do you, do you want to be made well? Is what it means. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Uh, this seems like an obvious question, doesn't it? After all, why is he there? But like with Nicodemus, when he told Nicodemus, hey, you must be born again. And like with the woman at the well, when he told the woman at the well, hey, if you knew who it was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink and he would give you living water. So too here, Jesus is trying to get this guy to go to a deeper level to understand a deeper need than what first meets the eye. Did he need to be made well physically? Yeah. Was Jesus asking about that? Yeah, at least in part because of what he does. But really what Jesus is trying to draw this man into is an understanding of his deeper need to be made well. Like a Nicodemus and like the woman at the well, he doesn't go there initially. In fact, in verse 7, he says this. He says, uh, sir, I have no one to, uh, to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. So here's where verse 4 comes back. This is why I think the editor probably put verse 4 in there to help us understand verse 7. What's he talking about when the water is stirred up? Well, it goes back to this cultic belief that when the water would be stirred up, the first one into the water was healed of whatever malady that they had. Now, did that ever happen? Again, zero external evidence that that was ever something that actually took place. So why were all of these people gathered around this pool? Why were all of these people gathered here in these colonnades waiting for the water to get stirred up if it never really did anything? Well, let me ask you a question. Why does our world gather around all of their different pools of Bethesda even when they know it won't work? How many times have you heard somebody who has all the money in the world look at the camera in an interview and say, yeah, but it doesn't satisfy me? Tom Brady, after winning his third Super Bowl, said, I keep thinking to myself, there's got to be something more than this. Robin Williams, think of the actor. He made people laugh for a living, and he was really successful at it. And yet he even reached a place where all of the money, all of the possessions, all of the comfort, all of his family wasn't enough. And yet that's still everything that the world keeps chasing after. So these people were looking for some sort of hope. 
they wanted to be made well. And this pool offered at least the idea that maybe it would work. Maybe I could be made well. And so they gather. And Jesus finds this man and says, do you want to be made well? And the man says, well, I I can't be made well because I can't get to the water. And so Jesus looks at him and he says this. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus is different. Jesus proves himself different. Jesus doesn't need this man to do anything to help him be delivered. See, this man was by the water and couldn't get himself to the water and no one would help him get to the water. Jesus doesn't look at this man and and ask him to do anything before he heals him. In fact, that's just it. it. Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Listen, that wasn't a prerequisite to the healing. The man was healed before Jesus even said that. Jesus is inviting the man to now live in light of his being made well. Jesus is beckoning the man, walk in newness of life, if I can put it that way. He's healed, he's done the work, he's solved the problem, he's addressed the need. This man's saying, I'm not okay and, and I need help with that. Jesus says, I'm the answer to you not being okay. And he heals the man so that the man is made well and is able to walk. And y'all, again, from the 30,000 foot view, that's what the gospel does to us. We're gathered at our different pools of Bethesda and we're sitting there going, I have no hope left in this world. So I'm grasping at straws now. And Jesus, by his grace, comes to us and says, be made well. And the veil is lifted, and we are given the faith to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior so that our sins are forgiven, and we too can be beckoned by God to walk in newness of life. You see, Jesus is the answer to what's wrong with the world. That's why we can't just say, hey, you know what? We're all not okay, and let's just be okay not being okay. That's contra Christianity, 100%. The first part's right. We're not okay. The second part couldn't be further from the truth. The mission of the church is not to tell the world it's okay that you're not okay. The mission of the church is to go say, we've got the answer, and the answer is a person, and his name is Jesus. And that's what we find here. Jesus heals this man. Boom. This man doesn't have to do anything other than now Jesus is beckoning him to live in light of the the victory that Jesus has bought on his behalf by healing him. Church, God has done that for you if you are in Christ. He's forgiven you. He's dealt with your greatest malady, which is sin. And now he's beckoned you to walk in newness of life. Our second point this morning, as we think about sin's impact, we do. We hate sin's impact in this world and in our lives. But now what do we do with this sin? We lean into point number two, the victory that we have in Christ. Overcome sin in Christ. Overcome sin in Christ. Again, big picture, foundationally, we're talking about the gospel. How do we begin to overcome sin in Christ? We make sure that we have repented from our sins and put our faith in Jesus as our Savior. We turn to the one that can provide the forgiveness that we need. We turn to the one that can heal us. We forsake our Bethesdas and we look to Jesus. See, but that's the problem. We live in a world, right, where men and women every single day get up and they drag themselves to their own pools of Bethesda, looking for healing, hoping for something that will take away the guilt, take away the shame, take away the condemnation that comes with sin. And y'all, if we're not careful as believers, that can creep into our lives too. 
we can forget that our victory is in Christ. And we can begin to think, man, I need to go back to my pools of Bethesda to find the answer for when I'm not walking the way I need to be walking. And so, church, we can be tempted to go to our pools like the pool of, of cleaning yourself up. You sin and you think, man, you know what? I, before I, need, I, I go back to church, before I pray again, before I read the Bible again, I, I, I need to go to back to my pool of self-righteousness. I need to think, man, I just need to be a, a, a better, I need to, be, I need to try harder. I need to be, be more of a, a sinless person. We think that we can clean ourselves up for God. Or, or maybe another pool is we think, okay, well, yeah, I've got this sin in this area, but if I, if I work really hard in these other areas, then maybe it's no big deal that I've got my sin in this area. And so we go to the pool of distraction and we think, well, if, if I can convince myself that I'm okay over here, then this doesn't really matter. Or maybe another pool that we go to is we think, you know what, I'm, I'm going to find a church that doesn't teach about sin as much. And you're sitting out there going, so not here? Is that? <laughs> I'm going to find a church that's going to itch my ears, that's going to tell me it's okay, it doesn't matter. You know what, all you need to do is just trust Jesus as your Savior, and then he, God's just so thankful that the prodigal son returned. It doesn't matter how you live your life after that. Maybe you're going to retreat. You're thinking, man, I, I feel the weight of my sin, so my answer is I'm just going to withdraw from the church, withdraw from Christians. I, I, I don't want to be reminded. Or maybe it's rationalization that becomes your pool. You begin to think, well, my sin's not as bad as that person's sin. So it's probably okay. Y'all, none of those are the answer to how to deal with sin. None of those provide the victory over sin that we need. Christian, the first stop that you need to make in seeking victory over sin is the cross. It's to be reminded that your anger and your lust and your jealousy and your envy and your lack of contentment and your greed and your entitlement, your self-centeredness have all been paid for by Christ on the cross. That's your first step. That's your first stop is reminding yourself of the forgiveness that you have in Christ, right? That's where we are made well. Declared justification, declared not just not guilty, but innocent with the righteousness of Christ. That's that stop number one for us. But then from there, we understand that that, that that death on the cross not only freed us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin in your life. So that now, Christian, you don't have to continue to obey your former masters of sin. You don't have to continue to go on to say yes to every temptation because now in Christ, you've been given the power to say no to those things. Paul describes this for us in the book of Titus when he talks about the grace of God. He says in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Okay, that's stop number one. That's the cross. That the grace of God has brought salvation to us, church. But it doesn't stop there because he says, training us. That same grace that saves you, trains you. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. He goes on, waiting for the blessed hope 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. There's the cross again. But for what purpose? To redeem us from all lawlessness, all sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see how the, the cross and your godliness are related to each other? You don't work for your salvation, but your salvation should work. Your salvation launches you into what we call sanctification, which is the, the process of being made more like Jesus. It's the process of being made more holy. And that sanctification process we talk about as progressive, meaning it's, it's not a once-for-all moment in time, that it's a progress where throughout your life you are going to be made more like Jesus in a gradual, progressive manner. That's what we're talking about here. And so when we find sin in our life, what do we do? We go to the cross with it and we remember that it's been paid for by Christ. We're not there to make up for any deficiency in what the cross has done. The cross is enough. But at the cross, we're also reminded of why Christ died for us. And it wasn't just to leave you as you are. Listen, Jesus came for you as you are, but not to leave you as you are. The cross is there in order to redeem us from all sinfulness, to purify us as a people for his own possession. And so when we take our sin to the cross, we're reminded that it's forgiven, but we're also reminded of the newness of life that you and I now have the power to be able to walk in. And so we can say no to our temptations. We can say no to the mindset that envies our neighbor. We can say no to the anger when somebody cuts us off on the road. We can say no. And if you're thinking, well, man, I, I, I still feel like I can't say no. There's a couple of stops to make. First stop is, are you cultivating that relationship with the Lord? Are you, are you leaning into that relationship with God so that he's filling you up with the ability through his word and through the spirit within you to go out and see victory over these sins? One pastor used to tell me a long time ago, he said this, there's, there's two animals at war within you. Not two animals, that's a better way to put it. There's two forces at war within you. The flesh and the spirit. So do you know which one's going to win? He's talking about the, the battle of sanctification on a daily basis. So do you know which one's going to win? The one that you feed. The one that you feed. Are you feeding the spirit? And that may be why you're not seeing the victory that you want to see. Because you're fighting without a weapon. We overcome sin in Christ. Back to this man. Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. The man does it. He gets up, he takes up his bed and walk. And he's walking along. And it says, and it was on the Sabbath. Okay? For us, we hear that. We're like, okay, whatever. For first century Israel hearing that, that's e-brakes pulling. That's tires screeching. That's, oh, no, this is not going to go well. And in fact, it doesn't go well. Look at verse 10. So the Jews, in any time in John's gospel, we read that phrase, the Jews. It's, it's representing, it's, it's a way for him to describe the opposition to Christ. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. This man is 40-year invalid. He's walking 
They're like, what are you doing? You can't be walking and carrying your bed. What's the story? What's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, there were two passages, Exodus 20, verse 10, Exodus 20, verse 10, and Leviticus 23, 3. Exodus 20, verse 10, and Leviticus 23, 3. Both of those texts established the concept that on the Sabbath, the, the Israelites were not supposed to do any work, okay? That they were supposed to rest and not do any work. That was the command, okay? Initially, out of a heart to make sure that, that God's word was protected and preserved, the rabbis began to try to define work. And this got down to the point where they started to define how many steps are you allowed to take before it's considered work. In fact, if you go to some major cities in the United States, I know they have this in New York City, you will see in, in, in certain city blocks a wire that stretches around the perimeter of some of these buildings there. And you might look at it and mistake it for uh, a power line or somebody was overzealous on their clothesline and, and just put it way up high. And you might think, well, maybe that's what it is. No, that's actually still vestiges of this whole concept that you can only travel a certain amount of distance before you have transgressed the law about working on the Sabbath. Here's the thing. All of those stipulations, here's how many steps you can take, here's how many sticks you can carry. All of those stipulations were not part of the inspired law of God, but the rabbinical law. So as this man picks up his mat and begins to carry it, he was transgressing one of the rabbinical laws that had been added. This is what it means to work. You cannot transport something from one place to another. In fact, here you go. This is from the, the Talmud. This is from the rabbinical commentary on this concept of working. One who carries out a large loaf of bread into public ground is culpable. In other words, you're guilty of breaking the, the Sabbath. If two persons do this together, in other words, if both of them carry the same loaf of bread, they're both innocent, provided it could be done by one of them. If, however, they did so because it could not be done by one, both are guilty. Okay, are you tracking with that? Number one, what kind of bread are they eating back then? That they need two people to carry out the lo- I want that bread. I mean, part of me is like, all right, let's, let's, let's have some carbs. This is going to be great. But that's how detailed they got, okay? It, it, if you want to carry your, your loaf of bread, make sure you get two people to grab that Mrs. Baird's loaf out of the fridge to carry it over to the counter. Otherwise, it's work. So that's why they come up to this man who's carrying the mat, and they're going, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do this. Again, talk about missing the forest for the trees. And you would, what would you expect for the man? He's been an invalid for 40 years, right? You would expect him to go, are you serious right now? Like, look, I'm, I'm doing this. I was never able to do that before. Like, do you not understand? Well, let's talk about Jesus for a second. In fact, John 9, we're going to see the, blind, the man born blind. He gets it. This guy doesn't get it, though. He does what Adam and Eve did when God came looking for him in the garden. What did they do? Not my fault. It was them. That's what this guy does. The Jews come looking for him. Hey, you're breaking the law. He says, it's not my fault. It's the guy that healed me. And they say, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Jesus had had backed off. What follows next is a sad scene. Because this man then walks away and Jesus finds him. And Jesus goes to the man and beckons him into a relationship with him. He goes to the man and says this in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That line, that nothing worse may happen to you, has led some to think that maybe this man's malady was a result of, of sin in his life. It's possible 
it's possible that is not a, a one-for-one correlation. In fact, in John 9, the disciples are going to say, was this man, is he born blind because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus is going to say it's neither of those. In this situation, it's possible this man was, was, was an invalid as a re- direct result of sin in his life. Jesus, the point is here, though, is calling him into newness of life. He says, go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And then in verse 15, it says this, and the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And Jesus comes to this guy and just invites him into a relationship with him. Understand that when he says, go and sin no more. He, he comes to a man that, that, that by every right should have been ready to jump in with Peter and James and John and, and, and go, Jesus, I want to follow you. Look what you did for me. How, how can I do anything else but want to follow you? But this man was so self-absorbed and his life was so much just about him that as soon as Jesus came to him and he found out that it was Jesus, he thought to himself, there's my golden ticket. I can get the Jews off my back. And he went back to the leaders and he said, the man who did this was Jesus. And look at verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What would you have done as the invalid? Again, 40 years. Here comes a stranger using only the words of his mouth, heals you. What would you have done? Let me rephrase the question. What have you done, Christian? What have you done for what Christ has done for you? What have you done in response to the fact that you didn't just get healed from a a, a physical malady? You got healed from a spiritual malady. You you weren't just delivered from the shame of having to, to beg for your living as a, as a, as a physical invalid, you, you are freed from an eternity in hell apart from God's goodness and love and mercy and compassion. It, it's not just that you were given a new life, uh, lease on physical life, but a new lease on eternal life was given to you. What have you done? What has your response been? This man was just concerned about himself. He was just stoked that he could go live his life to the fullest that he wanted to go live his life. Forget Jesus now. I'm just going to go live for me. Thanks for the, the legs. See you later. I would hope my response would be different from this man's response. I would hope that I would want to cling to Jesus, stay with Jesus, follow Jesus. With the new life that I've been given by Jesus. Church, that needs to be our response as Christians to what God has done for us. Our third and final point this morning is this. Surrender all to Jesus. That should have been this man's mindset. Surrender everything to Jesus. Jesus, I'm yours. Do with me what you will. My life is yours. I literally owe my ability, my existence, my life to you. Use me as you will. We sang it last week in that song, All I Have is Christ. Use me. As you will. But all this guy wanted to be was to be healed. Not to be healed and brought into a relationship with Christ. And y'all, that still happens today. People want a message that says, you know what? Come to Jesus with your broken marriage. He'll fix it. Come to Jesus with your rebellious kids. He'll fix it. Come to Jesus with your lack of, of resources. He'll fix it. Come to Jesus with your depression. He'll fix it. Come to Jesus with your envy. He'll fix it. Come to Jesus. They want the message, Jesus will fix it, and then you can just leave and don't worry about anything else. Y'all, that's not the gospel. 
Jesus saves you to sanctify you. Again, Titus, the grace that saves you trains you, right? Jesus is not interested in saving you and leaving you as you are. He's interested in saving you and making you an instrument of his to do his will in this world. He's interested in saving you and making you more like him. And that's why he beckons this man to walk in the newness of life. And he's done the same for you, Christian. The answer is, are you doing it? Are you walking in newness of life? Listen, y'all, don't treat Jesus like your mom at Chuck E. Cheese. Like, where's this one going? Don't treat Jesus like you do your mom at Chuck E. Cheese. When you show up at Chuck E. Cheese, what do you do with your mom? You, you leave her on the sideline with your jacket, and you go play all the games until she calls you and says to you, it's time to leave and go home. Y'all, some people want a relationship with Jesus like that. Hey, Jesus, let me know when it's time to go to heaven. In the meantime, can you just hold my coat while I go enjoy my life? That's not Christianity. That's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. That is nothing more than self-absorption. That's, I want salvation, but not a savior. I want the kingdom, but not the king. That's not Christianity. Our salvation is not about us. You have not been saved to make your life better. You have not been delivered from sin so that you can feel better about the rest of your life that you live however you want to live the rest of your life. You've been saved to be brought into a servitude to Jesus. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 6. He says, do you not know that your slaves are the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of righteousness? And that's a good place to be, church. Because the master and Lord that we have in Jesus is a kind master and Lord. Kind enough that he died for us to bring us into that relationship with him. And so my question for you this morning is this, is Christ Lord of your life? Have you surrendered all to him? Is he Lord of your, your servant here in the church? As you think about the, the different areas that you serve in, are you serving primarily for him or to be noticed by someone else? Those of you who are married, is Christ Lord of your marriage? Your role as a husband or a wife, are you living out that role in servitude to him as Lord? Saying, man, what does it look like for me to be a godly husband? What does it look like for me to be a godly wife? Third, is, is Christ Lord of your career? So you think about where you're going in your job. Are you thinking about where you're going in the, your job as a representative, an ambassador for Christ? Is that what's most important to you? Is Christ Lord of your possessions? Are you content in what he's provided for you? Is he Lord over your commute? What you listen to, how you react, how you respond? Is he Lord over your free time? Is he Lord over your thought life? Is he Lord over your playlist? Is he Lord over your politics? Is he Lord over your, yeah, this one hurts me, sports fandom? Does Christ own you? Is the question. Not just the areas that you want to give to him, but have you surrendered everything to him? That's what following Jesus means. And so our example of this man is, is really a negative example. 
because he didn't understand all that God had done for him in Christ. He didn't understand that the, the gravity of what Jesus had done for him it meant that he had an opportunity now to, to use his new legs in his life, in his physical body, literally to serve the Lord. And instead, what did he do? He said, well, this is all about me. And so this third and final point this morning is, is really just all about understanding we don't want to be like that man. The offer of healing is there for you, just like it was for him. And if you're in Christ, you've received that through the cross, something that cost far more than what it cost Jesus to heal that man. Because at the cross, it cost him his life, that he died on the cross for your sins so that you can be made well. We're about to celebrate that through communion. As these elements are passed, they're meant to cause us to remember and to think back to that time, to think back to that moment, to think back to that sacrifice, to think back to that, that event that took place in order that we could be made well. So as these elements are passed, again, there's nothing magical about them when you take them. They don't become anything other than the, the wafer and the juice. No, these elements are a memorial. They're there for us to remember this sacrifice. And to remember that because of this sacrifice, we can now walk in newness of life after Jesus. Remember, as we take these elements, there's three things to avoid. And the first is a lack of con uh, conversion. That this is something for believers. This is for some of those in the church. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, feel free to let these elements pass. Second is a lack of confession. That we want to make sure that we've spent time as these elements are being passed, confessing our sins before the Lord, bringing those things like we talked about in point number two, bringing those things to the cross and remembering that we have full payment made at the cross. And then number three, the danger to avoid is a lack of concentration. That we would celebrate this, this memorial that Christ commanded us to with our minds adrift on other things. Instead, let's make sure that we're, we're tuned in on what God's doing here. So these elements are going to pass, some music is going to play. I'll come back up here in a minute and we'll take the elements together.
I don't know what your perception of Jesus is this morning. But as I said, he's a, a kind master and a kind Lord. He loves us. In fact, he even loves us so much that he told his disciples, look, I'm going away. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going away, I'm going to come back for you. I'll come back for you to take you to be with me where I am. Jesus loves us so much to the point of what we're celebrating right now. To the point that he was willing to go to the cross and die, not just a physically excruciating death, but a death under the full weight of the wrath of God. Wrath that we rightly deserved, that he bore on our behalf. Jesus is not a, a vindictive, cruel, megalomaniac savior. He's a, a savior who loves us and loves us more than anyone else, I would argue, ever has or ever will love us. And that's through the cross. And so we remember it this morning. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you stand with me as I pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, it's that death that we just proclaimed through the remembrance of the act of communion that is the reason why we have hope. It's the reason why we can live free from the power of sin in our lives. It's the reason why, though we still hate its presence in our lives, we can see that we have victory over it as we lean into our relationship with you. And so, God, give us this week just a renewed uh, commitment and drive and desire to surrender everything about our lives to you to examine our lives and to say with David, Lord, try me, search me, know me, see if there's any way in me that's not in keeping with your word, with your lordship over our lives. And Lord, help us to bring that into submission to you. So God, give us a week faithfully serving you and fill us with a great joy and satisfaction that comes therein. We thank you that you are a savior who loved us so well that you loved us to the cross. And we praise you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Have a great week, church. We'll see you next weekend.